0: Today is March 6, 2015, and my guest is Campbell Harvey, professor of finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University and a former editor of the Journal of Finance. Campbell, welcome to Econ Talk. It's great to be on the show. Our topic for today is, in some sense, randomness, uh, one of the deep ideas in thinking about complexity and causation. As a jumping off point, though, we're going to use a recent paper you wrote with Yan Liu evaluating trading strategies, which was published in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And uh, we may get into some dis- additional issues along the way. Let's start by reviewing the standard way that we evaluate statistical significance in economics, for example, or other uh, applications of regression analysis. We, t- you'll hear people talk about a T statistic being greater than 2. And what does that represent? What's the, uh, what are we trying to measure there? What are we trying to assess when we, when we make a claim about significance of, a, say, one variable on another?
1: So the usual procedure, um, we actually think about trying to minimize the chance that the finding is actually a fluke. And it comes down to a concept called the uh, p-value or probability value. And what we usually try to do is to have... 95% confidence that the finding is actually a true finding. And uh, by definition, then, there's a 5% chance that the finding is a fluke. And when you do that in standard sort of statistical analysis, um, that is um, a so-called two-sigma type of rule. Um, and, and, and often, uh, this is quoted, uh, in popularly, like in surveys and things like that, where you've got, um, uh, a confidence level, uh, plus or minus, uh, a few percent. And that's the same 95% uh, confidence, uh, interval that leads to this, um, two sigma rule, which is the same thing as a T statistic of two.
0: And this is a convention uh, in economics that the two standard deviations, two sigma, uh, is therefore probably not a fluke. The 95 percent uh, level of significance – and I, I want to add one other important point before we go on is that when we talk about significance, all we mean in this technical conversation is uh, different from random, that there is some relationship. It doesn't mean what it means in everyday language, which means important. So a finding can show a relationship between two variables that's significant, but quite small. So it's significant statistically, but insignificant in real life, correct? Yeah, there's
1: two different concepts, uh, and, and both of them are important. We're talking about statistical significance by a two-sigma rule. Uh, there's another concept uh, that's equally as important called economic significance. So is this um, effect? really a big deal or is it like small in terms of the big picture of things?
0: So, as I said, it's a convention that 95% means, well, there's only a 5% chance. And for many people that sounds, and many economists accept, that that's like, well, if if it's only one in 20, then it's probably real. We've ruled out the likelihood that this is just a fluke. But as you argue in your paper, and we're going to talk about some different examples of this, as you argue in your paper... Uh, When the number of tests that we're making uh, starts to increase, um, that statistical technique is not as uh, convincing. So to set that up, I'd like you to talk about the Higgs boson, which seems far away from finance. But I found that to be a fascinating uh, example to help us uh, think about it.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, So the Higgs uh, discovery uh, was complicated. Uh, it was complicated for many reasons. Um, one, they had to build a collider that cost $5 billion to construct. But once it was constructed, they they knew what they needed to find. Um, and this was a particular decay signature that would be consistent with the Higgs, uh, Boston. But the problem was that that same signature could arise just by... Random chance. And uh, the number of collisions that they were doing um, and signatures that were being yielded was in the order of 5 trillion. So just a huge number of uh, possible random uh,
0: false findings uh, for the Higgs. So we're looking for, we're looking for, we're trying to identify the Higgs as a particular subatomic particle. Exactly.
1: Uh, So What they had to do was, given the extreme number of tests, um, they had to have a very different sort of cutoff uh, for uh, establishing a discovery or establishing statistical significance. And instead of using the two-sigma rule, they used a five-sigma rule. So way different than what we're used to. Uh, And this reflects just the the number of tests that were actually uh, being conducted.
0: So the idea – try to give me the intuition of this. So I, I'm going to collide a lot of things. A lot, I'm going I'm to collide particles many, many times, trillion, trillions of times. And we know that's going to generate lots of false positives. That's uh, Decay signatures that look like the Higgs but are not. Correct? That is correct. So you have so to be shouldn't really I just sure. Yeah, but shouldn't I – but that's – isn't there really sureness – just the fact that this is easily confused, rather than what do you mean by the number of tests?
1: Well, the, really, what we're talking about in the Higgs example are the number of collisions that were uh, taking place, and and I'm simplifying what they actually did um, at the uh, the collider. Uh, there are many different tests actually going on, but the the fact is that sometimes you would get a signature that looked like the Higgs but really wasn't the Higgs. So in order to actually, and nobody had ever discovered the Higgs. This is the first opportunity. So they had to be really sure that they were not being fooled by the random uh, sort of uh, occurrences of something that looked like the Higgs. So to do this, they had to be, uh, as I
0: say, five sigma confident uh, that it really existed. Now, that 's it 's a little bit for non statisticians five versus two is actually uh, a little bit misleading right it's not, it 's not that sounds okay so it 's a little more than twice as big so we 're a little more we 're requiring it the result to be a little more uh, comfortable yet but as we move numbers of sigmas away from zero it, it's, it, it's a it 's a much smaller chance than that it's say a little more than twice as likely that it's by chance right yeah just
1: you mentioned the five percent or the 95 percent confidence that means that one out of 20 will be a fluke so for a five sigma it's one divided by 1.5 million so this is very small
0: but it could still be a fluke
1: yes it could be
0: so it's a weird thing it's a weird thing because uh uh, you'd think you either see it or you don't, but I guess, uh, it's elusive and there are things that look like it that aren't it is what you're really, uh, what you're really saying.
1: Yeah. So can I give another example that I think has got sure. better intuition? Yeah. Uh, it's the, the famous jelly bean comic. Have you seen that before?
0: I have, and we'll put a link up to that. It's one of my all time favorites. Yeah. So yeah, describe it.
1: <laughs> okay. So this is a a famous cartoon called Significance. And uh, basically – It's it's
0: XKCD, it's XKCD the exactly. yeah, cartoonist uh, series.
1: So uh, somebody makes a statement, um, you know, I think that uh, jelly beans cause acne. So they said, okay, scientists, go investigate. So the scientists go and, and do a trial, and the trial would involve, I guess, uh, giving some people jelly beans and other people without the jelly beans – and then they would test to see if there was a, a difference, a significant difference between, I guess, the number of pimples uh, for the people that took the jelly beans and ones that didn't. And the test comes back, and there's no difference. There's no significant difference between the two. So um, the uh, so, so basically, the next frame of the comic is that, well, maybe it's not – the jelly bean itself, but the color of the jelly bean. So then the comic uh, goes and the scientists test uh, different colors of jelly beans. So again, the trial would be, let's say, uh, a group of people get some red jelly bean and others don't get any jelly beans. And they go through all of the colors. So red, there's no effect. So there's no difference in the amount of acne. And orange, yellow, purple, brown, black, dot dot dot, until the twentieth, mauve. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The twentieth test is green, and and they find that there's uh, a relation with the green. So uh, so they declare that um, green jelly beans cause acne, and that's what actually gets into the headline of the media
0: the next day. Green jelly beans cause acne. So the point here is that... With a 95% chance that it's uh, not random. That is only a 5% chance that it's random. Exactly. So that is true. So
1: that's what the significance means in this particular case. So everybody knows that there shouldn't be a significant effect. Uh, because it doesn't make any sense what they're, what they're actually doing, that the original test was the correct test, jelly beans versus um, no jelly beans. But the more tests that you actually do, it's possible to get uh, a result that is
0: just a fluke, uh, something random. And, and if you do 20, yeah, it, if you do 20, you'd expect one of them to, by chance, show that relationship.
1: Right. So that's why when you do 20 tests, you can't use the two-sigma rule. So by the two-sigma rule, if you try 20 things, then the odds are that something is going to come up as a fluke, as a finding that really isn't a true finding. So if you're doing one test, so the original test that they did in the comic, where they tested a group of people, they gave them jelly beans, and another group, no jelly beans. And that test... Two sigma is fine. That's a single test. However, once you start doing multiple tests, then you run the risk that something is going to show up as a fluke and two sigma is not good enough.
0: So let's take the example you give in your paper, which is really beautifully done. Um, And although there are some technical things in the paper, I I think the average person can get the idea of what you've done there, which is you present uh, at the beginning, a particular trading strategy, meaning a way to to quote beat the stock market and make a lot of money. And the strategy that you show, you, you of course tested over a long period of time because people know that in a short test, maybe by luck, you would just do well. But it's over many years, and uh, although it does eh, it doesn't do so great in the first year, it then does very very well consistently, including through the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, when many people lost. Uh, their shirts and other pieces of clothing, and you, it looks like a fantastic um, uh, strategy. And uh, you evaluate that with the Sharpe ratio, and talk in, in general terms, if you can, about what the Sharpe ratio is trying to measure as a way of evaluating a particular uh, stock trading strategy, investment strategy.
1: It, so the Sharpe ratio is, is basically the, the excess return on the strategy, so it's actually just think of it as the the average return, the average annual return on the strategy, divided by the volatility of the strategy. So the higher the Sharpe ratio, um, the uh, more attractive the strategy is. And indeed, um, there's a direct link, there's a direct relationship between the Sharpe ratio and the t statistic that we were just talking about. So they are mathematically linked. And uh, a high sharp ratio means a high T statistic, which means that the, the strategy um, is uh, a, a strategy that generates a return that is significantly greater than zero.
0: And that's – relative. it's actually relative to uh, a so-called risk-free return, right? Like usually, treasuries or, uh, or is that
1: – Yes, that usually you subtract out a benchmark uh, such as a risk-free.
0: And I might want to be comparing it to, say, a different benchmark, right? The Say the S&P, an index mutual fund, which a, which a lot of people hold. I'm often interested, did this strategy, say this, in, this manager, this uh, different kind of investment pattern, did it outperform the S&P 500 since that's a, it's not risk-free, but it's relatively um, – it's cheap. as low uh, low cost because it's automated. Correct.
1: That is correct. So that's often used to look at um, excess performance. So that is that is a strategy. You can think of investing in somebody um, that has got a, a certain return stream, and then um, think of it as, as shorting the S and uh, P five hundred futures. And that that's a strategy on its own. And the question is. Uh, do you get a return, an average return on that strategy that is significantly different than zero? So, is, is, say that
0: again. Is significantly different, different from zero. From zero.
1: Right? So that's that's basically if it's different from zero, if it's above zero, that is an indication of skill that the strategy actually has something that the market doesn't recognize, and it leads to. Um, some positive uh, return on
0: average, and that's what we all seek. We seek to beat the market. I'd say to um, say it even. I'd say in a different way, we are very. Um, it's easy to be seduced. We do seek it, but we also we desperately would love to have sort of that inside path, that sort of secret strategy. That you know the suckers they're doing, they're just taking, they're accepting that. That mediocre return, but I've got I've got the genius advisor running my money, giving me financial advice, and so I'm making a a premium. We have a, a real urge to have to have that.
1: Yes, we definitely want to be better than the average, and uh, and this is a, a prime target. and And we want to you know allocate our money um, to managers that uh, we believe are skilled and and skilled means that you can outperform um, the market.
0: And one of our lessons today, for me anyway, from thinking about these issues is how difficult it is to measure skills. So let's, in your particular example, this strategy which you start off the paper with, it's, uh, it has a significant uh, Sharpe ratio, right? It's very, it's much better than the average return. Than yeah, the, and, than, as you say,
1: it, it looks really good. Uh, it, you mentioned that there was a bit of a drawdown in in the first year, but it wasn't really that much, like 4%, and then it performs really well all the way through uh, the end of the sample. You look at it, it is significant. It's like 2.5 sigma. Um, So it it means that with the usual statistical test, you would declare this strategy to be
0: true and uh, that this is something that actually does beat the market. And you know, here I am naively investing my portfolio in a lot of indexed funds, and I obviously should switch. I'm, give, I'm losing money. I'm, I'm, I'm a fool because I, I should be doing this. That's what uh, it looks it, like. Yeah, so, but explain how you generated that fabulous strategy and why uh, it's a bad idea, or at least not, not statistically proven to be a good idea, even though it's uh, more than, way more than two standard deviations above the, the uh, likelihood that it's random.
1: Sure. So, uh, so the op- opening panel of my paper shows this great strategy, very impressive, 2.5 um, sigma strategy. Um, the second panel of the paper uh, shows that strategy plus 199 other strategies. And it turns out that what I did is I generated random numbers, Say
0: that again. I'm sorry. You cut out there for me anyway. Yeah, I, don't know
1: a, if, uh, I generated random numbers. Uh, basically, it's completely – there's no real data. I generated a series of random numbers with an average return of zero and a volatility that mimicked the S&P 500. And on this graph, I plot the um, the, the cumulative returns – of these 200 strategies, and you can see that on average, the 200 deliver about a zero um, return over the 10-year period. Uh, but on the on the tails, you can see the original strategy that I presented that had uh, a 2.5 uh, sigma that did really well, and you can see on the other side um, the worst strategy which had a 2.5 sigma below zero. So basically, what appeared to be a great strategy was purely generated by random numbers, had nothing to do with beating the market. And again, this is a situation when you've got 200 random strategies, some of them are going to look significant when they are not significant. These Every single one of these strategies, by definition, had zero skill because I fixed the return um, when i 'm simulating the numbers to have um, a, an average of zero
0: so this uh, well, let 's do one more example then we 'll we'll get to what the implications are. So the other example you get, which is one of my favorites is uh, i 'm going to use the football example i get a, I get an email from a, a football predictor. Who says, you know, I know the who's going to win Monday night. I know how, which team you should bet on for Monday night football. And uh, I get this email and I think, well, you know, these guys are just a bunch of hacks. I'm not going to pay any attention to it. And, but it turns out to be right. But of course, who does? It's got a 50 50 chance. But then for the next 10 weeks, he keeps sending me the picks. And I happen to notice that for 10 weeks in a row, he gets it right every time. And I know that that's, that's, un, that can't be done by chance, 10 picks in a row. He must be a genius. And uh, of course, I'm a sucker. Why? Yes. So this is a a classic example. So
1: let me set up um, what actually happens. So let's say after those 10 weeks in a row, you actually subscribe to this person's uh, predictions, and then they don't do so well after the 10 weeks. And the reason is that the original strategy um, was uh, basically send an email to 100,000 people and in 50,000 of those emails you say that uh, Team A is going to win on Monday and 50,000 you say Team B is going to win on Monday. And then if Team A wins the next week you only send to the people that got the correct prediction. So the next week you do the same thing 25,000 Uh, for team A, 25,000 for team B, and you continue doing this. And the size of the number of emails decreases every single week until after that 10th week, there are 97 people that got 10 picks in a row correct. So you harvest 97
0: uh, suckers uh, out of this. This is a strategy who are, willing to pay, who are willing to pay a huge amount of money because you 've got inside information obviously about and I can make a fortune that's, following your recommendation that 's what it looks like, and the fact is that this
1: is basically a strategy of no skill that it, it, 's 50-50 every single week there 's no skill whatsoever, but it looks like skill so again when when you realize um, what is actually going on you, you can 't use the same sort of statistical significance because in 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 the usual case to get ten in a row that that is highly significant, but given what you know has happened um, it it can 't be significant it 's exactly yeah. what you expect
0: so that leads us to the deep question uh, Is Warren Buffett a smart man? I mean he is called the Sage of Omaha. He's done very, very well. He makes a lot of money relative to his competitors. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, which is his uh, uh, stock version of his portfolio, is a a wild success. So obviously he's a genius, true or false? So I've not actually studied um, the Berkshire Hathaway data,
1: so I'm not going to make a a judgment on it, but maybe I will. (laughs) It's a good idea for my research. Um, So this is when you've got 10,000 uh, or more managers that people are going to look really good year after year just because you've got over 10,000 managers purely by chance so uh, they could be they could be monkeys throwing darts at the wall street journal so th- this is exactly the same situation that I'm highlighting in my paper that um, many managers will potentially for 10 years in a row beat their benchmark, and it will be a result of luck that there will not be any skill. And, and this is also important that you could have many managers that are skilled, that are excellent managers.
0: Yeah, that there fail. is the flip side. Yeah, yeah the, the flip failed. side is hard yeah, to remember. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this is very important. Um, because often your manager doesn't uh, perform as well as you wanted for, let's say, two or three years in a row, and then you ditch that manager, and that and that's a mistake uh, because it's possible that that manager is a is a skilled manager and basically suffered for some, from some bad luck. It's the randomness um, that can get you. So mistakes are made on both sides, and, and that's really... Um, what I'm addressing in my research.
0: So this, um, you know, raises a very tough question, and it's a question that, that's pervasive. Uh, I may bring up, uh, you know, some other sports examples in a minute, but just in case I don't, you know, people will talk about so and so is the greatest coach of all time, so and so is the greatest quarterback of all time, and or that um, Campbell Harvey is the best uh, finance professor of all time because of a variety of factors. And, of course, there's a random element in every aspect of this. So it leaves you with the uneasy, a thoughtful person is left with the uneasy feeling that uh, the the normal ways that we assess quality are deeply flawed because they're a mix of luck and skill. So where does that leave us?
1: Well, the first thing is you need to realize um, the impact of of this randomness. Um, and, And you are correct that there is so much that goes on that we attribute to skill that isn't skill. And it might be a sports example where somebody's on a so-called hot streak. Um, yeah. And again, it could be just purely random that you've got uh, connecting like 10 baskets in a row or, or, or something like that. Uh, and it's really important to separate that. up. So how likely is it that something like this could happen? You'd be surprised at how likely it actually is. So, so this is definitely the case. Um, yes, it's true. Even in 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 scientific work, it it is possible to make a discovery, like a real discovery, um, but it's 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 random. Uh, you just get lucky in terms of what you actually do. Um, in other fields of scientific research, um, to to actually, and this is this is kind of interesting. Um, where the first person to publish, let's say a medical discovery is often um, they call it uh, that there's a, a winner's curse and And basically what that means is that the first person to publish it, given all of the data mining that actually went on, um, it's likely that the effect is overstated number one or number two. Doesn't exist. So when people replicate the study, they find that the effect is a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah. So this happens all the time. That it is so difficult uh, to separate uh, the skill from the luck, and I'm afraid that we don't really think it through, and we use these rules that are are pretty naive.
0: So uh, Nassim Taleb has been a guest on Econ Talk a number of times, and of course he's associated with. Issues related to these questions in his book, Fooled by Randomness, and in The Black Swan, I want to talk about black swans for a second. We're talking about, you know, is this a good strategy relative to other strategies? Another question we might ask as investors or as decision makers is, uh, what's the downside risk? I want to be prudent. I, I don't want to take an excessive risk. So I don't mind sometimes if I make a little bit less. Uh, but what I don't want to have is I don't want to be wiped out. I don't want to have a catastrophic uh, result, and so I worry, of course, I should worry also not just about, say, the average return, but about that left hand tail, so of a really catastrophic event and I, Can you talk a little bit about the role that assumptions play in assessing strategies, typically in the finance literature? Taleb has argued that you know normality the the persistent uh, presumption of normality is a very uh, destructive uh, assumption because. Although it makes things more tractable, it often ignores these uh, left-hand tail events when they're so-called fat, when they're more likely than they would be in a a normal distribution. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, And this
1: is actually part of my other research stream, so it's very convenient that you mention this. So we've been talking about something um, that uh, is called the SHARP ratio, and And that's basically the excess return divided by the volatility, so it turns out that uh, this is definitely not the sort of metric that I would recommend using for evaluation of a strategy and The reason is the following that it does not take into account the tail behavior, so it kind of it assumes directly that the things that happen on the downside look approximately the same as the things that happen on the upside. So it's symmetric. And uh, and often you get this situation where you look across different investment styles and you see that some investment styles have a very high Sharpe ratios and other investment styles have very low Sharpe ratios. And, and the reason is not that one investment is any better than the other. It's that there's a different sort of tail behavior. So, for example, the low-sharp ratio uh, strategy might uh, have uh, the possibility, once in a while, of a big positive outcome, uh, like a lottery sort of payoff. Whereas the high-sharp ratio strategy, uh, on average, it does really well but then there's a possibility of a catastrophic downside. So the Sharpe ratio is is only useful if you're evaluating, as you said, uh, relatively normally distributed uh, returns, because it does not take into account um, the the downside or upside differential. So that's something that I definitely uh, do not recommend.
0: But it's a fascinating thing because, you know, as an investor, uh, and of course this comes up in, in social science as well, but as an investor, I don't live forever. I don't get an infinite number of draws from the urn. I don't get to play roulette for a million years. So I get the particular string that comes out from T0 to T14 in my time at the table. And of course, that's a particular string. You can come back from Las Vegas and make a lot of money and think you're a great card player, when in fact you just happen to sit in on that that string. And when you think about that, those asymmetric returns, um, I get the, I get, I don't get the average return. <laughs> I get whatever it it happens to be in that time period when I'm holding that asset. And it's, I think it's very hard for people to, I think one of Talib's insights is that. We think so often about uh, normality and things that – so many things in our life are normally distributed height and weight and other things uh, that that when we deal with these kind of problems, we really don't have the apparatus, the intuition that we need to have.
1: Yes, um, I I totally agree. And I think that finance has done a particularly poor job. Um, Indeed, if you look at the textbooks, the classic textbooks in finance – there's very little mention of tail behavior. Uh, so I'm always an advocate of uh, holding a diversified portfolio, but that portfolio needs to be diversified um, over a number of dimensions. So we usually think of, of getting that portfolio with the highest possible um, uh, projected return for some level of volatility. And my research points to, well, you need to take – This third dimension into account, um, which is uh, the technical uh, term for it is skewness. So something that's negatively skewed has got a downside tail that you don't like. And something that's positively skewed, like a lottery, um, has got a positive tail. And you need to take that into account when you form your portfolio because people have a preference. They prefer... Um, uh, a strategy or a portfolio or an asset return that's got the positive tail. We want, we want the big payoff hmm. and we've got a, a yeah. distinct dislike for uh, assets that have catastrophic downsides. So that needs to be taken into account in designing an optimal uh, portfolio strategy and that is what I, I pushed in uh, an article I published in the Journal of Finance a number of years ago.
0: Yeah, because the you know it's um, if you have a bad if you put a if you put a dollar on red at the roulette wheel and you lose it, it's not a big deal. If you put your fortune on red, uh, or a better way to say, it, if you put a dollar on red and they can then go into your bank account if if red has come up uh, hasn't come up a certain number of times, uh, you don't get that second chance. You don't get the um, the problem with the catastrophic things. You can't bounce back. By definition, you're you're, you're in a hole that. You either literally can't come back from because you're wiped out you're bankrupt or you you you're going to require a very 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 long period of time to to make your money back
1: yeah that that's true um, that's exactly how it works um, can can I tell you a, a true story something that happened to me recently uh, sure that I got a phone call uh, from a uh, a Duke graduate um, who actually went to the business school and he wanted me to basically endorse a, a product that he'd been running for a few years um he was managing uh 8 well it was 400 million dollars a simple strategy um that he was buying S&P 500 futures so kind of holding the market but then um he was also adding on uh some options where he was writing or selling options that were out of the money Uh, for calls and puts. And when you do that, you collect a premium. And for the five years that he was operating, uh, that premium led to an extra return. So it looked like he was beating the market. So every year he had about two to 300 uh, basis points or two to 3% above the S&P. And uh, he basically said, well, this is a great strategy Are are you um, willing to endorse it? And I, I basically said to him, obviously – Are you out of
0: your mind?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you didn't take my course um, because you would never ask me this question. So, so think about what that strategy is doing. So that strategy, when the market goes up a lot, that means that those options are valuable and you give up your upside. So you have to pay off the, uh, the person that you sold the, the option to. So you give up your upside in extreme up movements. And on the downside, if the market goes down, then you need to pay. So your downside is magnified if there is a big move in the market. So, so think about, so basically this person has changed the payoffs of the S&P 500, cut off the upside and magnified the downside. And in this extra return that they 're getting over the five years well they 're lucky over the five years that you haven 't seen a big move up or down so this is a great example of tilting a portfolio more towards this this negative skewness and when you 've got negative skew, that means that the expected return should be higher because people don 't like this downside possibility so so this is kind of like brings it together. That uh, anything like this, whether it's an option or an insurance policy, uh, insurance policy you pay a premium for, um, and and that's kind of a, a, a negative return for you. But if the fire happens and burns your house down, then you get the payoff, right? So you're willing to protect that downside. And I think that we don't really think this through enough in the way that we approach our portfolios.
0: Yeah, well, it's, again, it's not just um, our portfolios. It's many, many things in life where we are evaluating the effectiveness of some strategy, and we don't like to think about it. And so we just sort of – it's a cherry-picking example. I want to think I'm doing the right thing, and I look at how well it's going, and then I can brag to my brother, hey, I made a killing, but I don't realize that the five years that I've been observing the data are not typical. Uh, and, of course, they never are. Almost by definition, right. <laughs> there are things going on in any five-year period that are distinctive that it's, you have to be careful about. To me, so to me, the lesson in this is you, you have to, when you're trying to evaluate quality of anything, you have to have some intuition, what I would call wisdom, which is very hard, about the underlying logic of the strategy that the data itself don't speak and i i think this is a very dangerous uh problem in economics generally uh, so i want let me take it there and then we'll we'll look at some of the implications so you know ed lemer's critique of econometrics and and statistical significance is very similar to yours which is if you run a lot of regressions if you do a lot of statistical analysis uh and try all these various combinations of of variables that you were hope might show some significance and then you find it the classical measure of uh, of the t statistic greater than two is meaningless. Yes, uh, and and the temptation to then uh, to to say uh, I found something is is so powerful because you want to get published, and uh, as you point out from your previous example, a lot of the findings aren't true; they don't hold up.
1: So it's not just getting published. So. This My critique applies to uh, people that are designing these strategies, these quantitative strategies. I was – again, this is a, a, a true story. A number of years ago, I was shown some research at a high-level meeting at one of the top three uh, investment banks in the world. And this person was presenting the research and basically he found a variable that looked – Highly significant in beating the market uh, with a regression analysis, as you said. And it turned out that this variable was the 17th monthly lag in
0: U.S. industrial production. That was it's it. huge. Yeah. It's, so I've always known that's an important factor. Yeah, exactly. But see, that's the beauty of his approach. Nobody knows it, but by his fabulous deep look at the data – he uncovered this secret relationship that no one else knows. So I asked,
1: so 17th lag, that, that seems a <laughs> little unusual. Um, so usually we think of maybe the second because the one month um, the data isn't available because of the publication delay. Um, yeah. Maybe the third, but the 17th, where's that coming from? And then he uh, basically said, well, that's the only one that worked. <laughs> So it's the, it's the jelly bean example. Yeah. Um, there's a, a paper that's circulating that, that looks at um, the performance of stocks um, sorted by the first letter of the stock name. So they'll look at the performance of all the stocks that begin – the companies uh, begin with the letter, letter A, B, C, yeah. D. And, and one of them is significant. One of the
0: 26. 26. How shocking. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So this stuff happens uh, all the time, whether it's in a a very reputable uh, investment bank or whether it's within academia. Uh, People basically are not adjusting
0: for the data mining that is occurring. Yeah, so uh, Lemur's suggestion is to—he hey, has more than one—but his one of his early suggestions was to do some sensitivity analysis. Basically, look at all the different combinations of the variables that you might look at, and if you find that under most or all of them, the result is there's a narrow band of, of effect of the one that you're trying to claim as the key variable. Uh, say, and the example he gives in his paper is a beautiful example: is uh, does capital punishment deter? Um, uh, murder and uh, does the threat of capital punishment uh, induce people to stop uh, killing other people, and he, he shows it's easy to find uh, an analysis that shows it does, and then of course it's easy to find one that shows that capital punishment increases murder, perhaps because who knows why uh, people are there's more brutality in the culture and our civil in our society, but it all depends on what you put in the in the on the right hand side, what all you know the different variables you might include, but if after you did that you found that it always deterred or never did, then you'd feel more confident. So you have a suggestion in in finance. What are your your suggestions?
1: Well, there are a number of suggestions that I explore in my research. Um, One suggestion is to actually ditch the uh, the two-sigma rule and move the cutoff higher, just like we uh, do in physics or uh, genetic uh, science and and things like that. Um, There are Other approaches, too, the most popular approach is the uh, so-called out-of-sample approach, where you actually hold out some data, you kind of fit your strategy to the past, and then uh, apply it to, let's say, the most recent five years of data to see if it actually works. And that is a long-established sort of method. Um, It sounds very good. it, It sounds good, but it's got problems. Uh, for example, um, you actually know what's happened in the past. So if we hold out the last five years, well, we, we kind of remember that we had this uh, major um, global financial crisis. So the researcher knows that and might actually stick in some variables in the early part of the data that they know are going to work in the out-of-sample. So, so that's one problem. The other problem is uh, a flawed sort of scientific procedure where somebody looks at a model um, and in sample and then takes it out a sample that doesn't work. then they go and and basically uh, redo the model, re- removing some variables perhaps or a different method uh, and then try it out a sample that fails and they just keep on iterating back and forth back and forth until something works and of course, that, that is – you're just asking for the fluke uh, situation. So uh, the, the, the final problem with uh, the so-called out-of-sample technique is that you might fit uh, a strategy over a number of years and then test it um, in the last five years. And the strategy might fail, but it might be uh, a true strategy, and it's only because you have so few years that just by Correct. bad luck – uh, the strategy fails, so so it is not a panacea um, to actually go to the the out of sample method.
0: So some listeners will remember an interview uh, they did with Brian Nozick, the psychologist, a few years back, where he's uh, and others in psychology have become worried that some of the more iconic results in psychology are not replicable, and it seems to me that, and they've tried to replicate them, and some. Fail some don't obviously, but this seems to me a huge, enormous problem. And as we say, it's it's one thing to talk about um, some particular psychology theory. It's when we're talking about people losing money uh, for their personal uh, retirement, or when we talk uh, more importantly even about epidemiology, where some claim about the relationship between, say, alcohol consumption and health, positive or negative, is going to maybe cost people lives or save lives. Uh, the fact that many of these results don't stand up to replication is uh, seems to me to be an enormous problem in this, in our in our scientific literature. It's, it's a social science problem, but it's a physical science problem. Uh, do you agree that we got a big problem there? That that much of this um, so called science is not scientific.
1: Uh, I agree that there are problems, but let me just elaborate a little bit. Um, psychology is at the very bottom of the hierarchy of science in terms of uh, publishing results that are not significant. So what I mean here is that um, it's rare in psychology to actually publish a paper where you pose a hypothesis and the hypothesis garners no support and you you have a non-result. That's very difficult to publish in psychology. So the sort of... Papers that are published in psychology, um, over 92% of them are papers where, oh, here's a hypothesis, I did an experiment, and I get support. Okay, so that that is a problem because it leads to people uh, essentially uh, data mining to find a result and then actually getting it published. On top of that, um, when you data mine um, – it is possible to figure out that it's data mined if you replicate. And in psychology, there is a very poor culture of replication, people not that interested in replication of these experiments. And this contrasts, as you said, with uh, medical science, epidemiology is a a good example, where somebody actually might data mine the data um, and publish something, but then a half dozen other people replicate it, and and find that it isn't an effect, and that and we actually learn something uh, when that actually happens. In finance, uh, there isn't a, a large culture in terms of replication, but there's a particular reason for that. That we're not running experiments with uh, with human subjects. We're actually looking at the data, and um, the data is a, is a fact. So if you're looking at the New York Stock Exchange data. Um, you're that 's everybody 's got that data, so if you tell me that uh, this particular value strategy has an excess return um, over the last fifty years of five uh, percent, well anybody can go in and immediately with the with the one line of computer code uh, replicate that so those um, so there isn 't a large culture of replication because it really isn 't necessary. Uh, in terms of what we do. And psychology is a totally different game. And indeed, they've had terrible trouble with um, people inventing the data of these uh, experiments and having to, that's another, to retract. Yeah, that's a
0: separate... Yeah. <laughs> you
1: just can't... finance, it's, it's a similar data.
0: problem in finance and in epidemiology. So let me uh, lay that case out and you can answer it. I, in, um, it's true everybody's got the New York Stock Exchange data. But that person who runs the seventeenth lagged uh, industrial production variable and improves using statistical uh techniques that it's important has the issue that well, is that going to work going forward that to me is the replica is the equivalent of replication in that in that model and similarly in in macroeconomics, the cherry picking of of sample size or of sample time period and of, of various variables to prove. That, that Keynesianism works or doesn't work, that monetary policy is crucial or is irrelevant. Uh, to me, it's just an intellectual cesspool. I, I hate to no. say it, but I no, don't I, see – I totally don't
1: agree here because
0: uh, okay. Why? My, my
1: paper basically uh, says that uh, you need to adjust the significance for the number of tests. So that person that ran the uh, regression that the 17th leg of industrial production uh, came in is significant. If they adjusted the significance level, given that they ran 24 different tests, they tried two years of legs, then that 17th variable is not significant. You would reject that variable. So my paper actually provides a method to avoid some of these mistakes. And again, this is a big deal. It could be somebody's pension money um, running on a strategy like this. What I'm saying, you need to take into account that we've got, in this particular situation, 24 different things that have been tried, not one. And if you do that, then you minimize the chance that some bogus strategy based on a fluke finding uh, is is basically allocated to in your pension and, and you lose your money. So there are ways to deal with this, and my paper actually provides a method to do that.
0: Yeah, and no, I understand that. But but you happen to be sitting in a meeting with that was an informal meeting, and you said you were able to ask the question, how many times did you run that? Uh, when I see – I'll give just my favorite example. I My favorite example, this is an epidemiology. There was a, a paper that showed that um, – the front page of New York Times, of course, and every, it was an enormous story that drinking alcohol increased cancer among women. And it's that's a frightening thing. Uh, obviously, you don't want to fool around with that. And I, uh, unlike many of the journalists, I actually went and got the paper and I read it. And I ta- I contacted the researcher, and there were two things in the paper that just didn't get mentioned. One was the fact that they had the cancer history of the of the um, population in the sample. Uh, they had. Did your mother have uh, cancer? Uh, they had that information, but they did not use that in the. In the analysis, I don't, I don't know why. It was a strange, since we know there's a genetic relationship, I don't know why they didn't use that. But, but more importantly, was how they defined uh, drinking and not drinking. They threw out all the people who didn't drink on the grounds that people who say they don't drink in a survey or maybe used to drink, and then we'd be mismeasuring it. Well, uh, that's true. It's also true that people who say they drank maybe had different drinking habits in the past. And, of course, once you throw out the non-drinkers, uh, some of them uh, actually the, had worse health. Not not some of them. The average non-drinker had, less, had more cancer than the people who drank a little bit. So that was awkward, right, to throw those people out. See, to be to be a rather unfortunate decision. Uh, they did it on the grounds that, of course, that they, those weren't measured accurately. Of course, none of the others are measured accurately either. They're all based on, say, memory in this case, or whatever it was. Uh, there wasn't a lifetime sample or observe, real-time observations. So somebody runs a regression, somebody, excuse me, not runs a regression, publishes a paper in economics, and uh, they don't tell you how many regressions they ran, ever, never. We don't get to see the video of what happened in the kitchen when they ran these uh, the tests and when they transfigured the variables and decided that the square term was the right term, so it seems to me that that in the absence of that, we're really in many many of the things we find are not going to be replicated effectively.
1: So I 100% agree with you um, with what you just said that um, that it is a cesspool. Uh, that what I was talking about earlier was fixing something relatively straightforward where you know 24 tests have taken place and uh, the 17th uh, lag works, so you can adjust for that, it's not significant. But what you're talking about is a broader critique that, again, um, I mentioned in my research that it's not just the number of tests. So what o- the other problems that arise are the manipulation of the data, so it might be that you start your analysis in 1971 versus 1970. That one year could make a huge difference in terms of your results. It yeah. might be that you trim outliers out of the, uh, the data. It might be that you use an estimation uh, method that uh, has a higher chance of delivering a so-called significant result. So it's not just the number of tests, but it's all the choices that researchers make, and it it is a, it is a very serious problem in academic research uh, because uh, the editors uh, of the scientific journals don't see all of the choices uh, that have been made. Um, it is also a problem in practical research um, in in terms of the way that. People are designing strategies for uh, investors. Um, however, and, and this is kind of, I, I think, uh, interesting. My paper has been very well received uh, by uh, investment bankers and, and, and people designing these strategies. And, and, and actually, it, it's interesting because they actually don't want to market a strategy that turns out to be a fluke. Because that means that it hurts their reputation, it reduces the amount of fees that they get and 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 really um, basically it could reduce their bonus uh, directly, so they actually have a, a strong incentive in terms of business practice uh, to get it right so so within the um, practitioner community at least, there are strong incentives uh, to reduce the um, the impact of data mining so that you can develop a good reputation. However, it, on the academic side, it's not as clear as you said. There's um, minimal replication in some fields, and uh, and the editors don't see all of the hocus pocus going on
0: uh, before the paper actually is um, submitted for scientific review. Yeah, well, when you were in that meeting at the investment bank, and the person said, I, I ran this test and it was significant. And you said, uh, "Well, how many did you run?" He said, "Well, twenty-six or twenty-four, or whatever it was." And you said, "So that's not significant." Nobody around the table said, "So what? Does it matter? We'll be able to sell it because it's two point. You know, it's over two No, people. That, that, I'm sure the
1: they do not want to do this. So if, that's horrible. They put this yeah. out that damages a reputation hugely. So everything is reputation uh, in in terms of um, kind of street finance. And you want to do the right thing. You want to have in place a protocol, an explicit protocol where uh, some uh, investor asks the question, well, how do I know that this isn't due to data mining? And then what you can do is to point to your protocol saying, well, we're well aware of data mining, and we actually take the following steps to minimize its impact. We obviously can't get rid of the chance that some findings could be a fluke, but we try our best to minimize that because we want to do the best thing for you because that's how we make money.
0: So I was going to ask you uh, – we won't talk about it, but I'm going to raise it anyway. I was going to ask you whether you think Mike Krzyzewski, the coach at Duke University, is a basketball team, is a good coach. He's considered one of the greatest coaches of all time. He's won over 1,000 games. So everyone knows he's a good coach. Or Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots. Everyone knows that person's a good coach. And it seems to me, of course, there's a random element in in, in those records that, that, is, that deceives, uh, that's complicated – and when we think about examples like like finance or epidemiology, it seems like if we don't come down to the issue of what's really going on underneath the data, what's the model that's that's that you have in mind that that you're trying to to measure, uh, it seems like we're really lost. And the reason I, I mention that is that you know in epidemiology, I don't really know the mechanism by which alcohol causes cancer. You know, I, I hope someday we'll uncover it. Uh, but then just looking at uh, statistical relationships without understanding the underlying biology seems to me to be dangerous. And similarly, if I don't understand why the 17th lagged uh, level of industrial production is significant, it's not just that it's 26 vari- it's twenty six tests and it's therefore not statistically significant. It's that it doesn't make any sense. That- so it, it, I think ultimately in all these cases when we're trying to assess... The, the component of our outcomes that are due to randomness, we have to have some fundamental understanding of the causal mechanism, or we're really at risk.
1: I agree with that. So I didn't need uh, to adjust the significance level on the seventeenth leg of industrial production. Right. <laughs> it, that model's gone; it's history, and the employee that did it is probably history also. Uh, after after these comments. So, but it might be more complicated. It might be that you just see a strategy. Uh, you don't know really what's behind it, because often an, in, an investment bank or, or a company might not be willing to reveal the uh, the inner workings of the model. So you need Correct. to have some sort of statistical uh, method to actually do this. But I agree that the best thing that you can do is to ask the question: What is the economic mechanism? Why does this work? Tell me the line of causality and try to minimize um, sort of spurious sort of relationships that are often uh, put um, to the public uh, where people are claiming causality when it's much more complicated. So I think that uh, the bottom line here is that you do need to have a solid economic foundation. You need a story or uh, you should be very suspicious of uh, the performance of a uh, particular strategy.
0: So let's close with, uh, with a thought on uh, big data. There's an enormous, I think, seductiveness to database solutions to all kinds of things, whether it's portfolio analysis, whether it's health, um, all kinds of things. are We're, we're much better, better at measuring things and we have a lot more uh, measurements going on. And so a lot of data is being produced and uh, there's a, a, a golden ring being held out there for us to grab that just if we just use more data, we're going to be able to improve our lives so tremendously. And of course, without data, you're in trouble. It's, you don't want to just rely on your intuition. You don't want to just rely on storytelling about which anecdotes or which uh, re- narrative sounds more convincing. You want to measure stuff to be scientific by de- almost by definition. And yet, so easily we make these kind of uh, mistakes, both in our personal reasoning, individual reasoning, and also at a at a professional level. And we talk about these kind of statistical analyses. So, what are your thoughts on this um, this uh, romance uh, that we have toward for for data and evidence? Do you think it's a legitimate one, or is it a, a very mixed bag? Which is my bias. Um,
1: well, I, I think that there's an upside and a downside. So, I guess I concur that it is a bit of a mixed bag. I think that big data is not going to go away, that uh, it's here to stay. I think it's very important, um, indeed, as part of my paper, to emphasize that we need to kind of evaluate the findings from uh, data mining in a different way than we've evaluated findings in the past. So that's uh, that's clear because some of these findings are going to be random and we want to get rid of the flukes. Um, what worries me is that some of these findings that are found with, uh, with the big data and the data miners, um, the people look at the findings, and then only after the finding, they concoct a story or a theory or develop ex yep. post some intuition yep. as to why this should work. And I think that's dangerous. I prefer to work on the basis of first principles, what is reasonable, so you could concoct uh, a ridiculous story uh, about the 17th leg uh, of industrial production that is uh, something to do with some semi-annual seasonal that exists and that peaks in the third semi-annual uh, period. Uh, that's not what we need. That doesn't advance us in terms of scientific knowledge. So I worry about... Um, the uh, the cart um, behind the horse put uh, in front of the horse.
0: My guest today has been Campbell Harvey. Campbell, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.